Well, welcome back to part two of our Exploring the Faith uh, sessions together as we uh, look at the basics, the foundations of our faith and our worldview. Uh, part one was a good introduction um, for just the general kind of Christian worldview. And uh, now we're going to get a little more specific into how we look at uh, who God is and who we are and how all of this fits together. Uh, one of the things that we made last week was that uh, we distinguish uh, in God's word between the law and the gospel. Uh, the law is what we're responsible for, what we do, if you will, are supposed to do. And the gospel is what God does, what he does for us, what he has done, what he will do for us. And so now we're just going to focus this part two here on the law aspect of God's Word. Remember, God's Word is the foundation. So the first question, if you oh have the uh, study guide uh, to follow along with, maybe you're, uh, the PDF online or a hard copy like I've got here, Lesson 5, which is on page 6, God's Law, what it is, and how it is revealed. How do we know what God's Law is? And uh, the first blanks that we have here, number 1, God's Law tells us what God would have us do and what God would have us be in relationship to him and others. Uh, again, God has a great design for his creation and for all people and how we relate to each other, how we treat each other. But also, God has told us how we can relate to him as well, which we all have, all humans, have this burning desire in our hearts uh, to, to know their creator, to be in relationship with God. Uh, number two, this is uh, from Luther's small catechism on page 51. In the law, God commands good works of thought, word, and deed, and condemns and punishes sin. So again, uh, a lot of times we think of just behavior. Uh, that's a part of following the law. Uh, but because God knows our hearts, then it's even our thoughts. And it's certainly our words that we speak to each other, how they can be hurtful or how they can build other people up. God's law, how is it revealed and known? So how do we know God's law? Two ways. The first way is just natural revelation. Just the way God has revealed it to all human beings all over the world. And in Romans 2, Paul writes about this natural knowledge that God has given to all people. He says, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. In other words, now we're using law in multiple ways here, but the law is in uh, the, the Torah, the Old Testament. Uh, verse uh, 15 they show that the work of the law, God's law, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts, accusing and even excusing them. So, God has implanted in all humans this conscience, this sense of right and wrong, a sense of morality. And that's something that um, all people have. You can go to any culture, anywhere in the world at any time in history and all humans are born with two things they they know that there's a god and they've made him mad 
Uh, they know that they have not lived up to the standard that God, their creator, would want them to live. Now, some cultures obviously got uh, lost in communication. Uh, they tried to appease this God by sacrificing people even. Um, but if you go to the like Pacific Islands, you'll see uh, the indigenous people have created masks of their gods, and these masks are these snarling teeth, these angry faces, this, they, 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 they know there's a God, maybe they think of it as gods, but they know there's this creator and they know that they've messed up and made him mad. Uh, that's just a natural instinct that all people have. Now there's a second way that God reveals his law to us. That's just by telling us. We call that specific or we call it direct revelation. That's what we get in Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments, the famous Ten Commandments, are recorded for us, uh, for posterity, uh, after they were given to Moses and given to the people of Israel some 4,000 years ago. Uh, the Ten Commandments are kind of the epitome of God's law. They summarize all of what God would have us do and be, again, in relationship to him and in relationship to our brothers and sisters on the earth. So I'm gonna, I'm not gonna read through the whole passage here in Exodus chapter 20, but I definitely wanna look at the first couple of verses because think about this, this is the 10 commandments. This is the law. I mean, this is it right here. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'll stop there just for a second. So even before God gives us his law, the big one, the Ten Commandments, he stops and he says, remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have rescued you. I have saved you. Before he even tells us, thou shalt this and thou shalt not that, he says, Remember what I've done for you. I've saved you. And that's gospel, by the way. We'll get to that uh, in the next part. But he, he, before he even gives us the law, he reminds us of the gospel. Uh, God has created us. He's given us this life free uh, of his own benevolence and, 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 and generosity and mercy and love. And he takes care of us. And he's our God. He does rescue us even today from more things than we're probably aware of. So, again, not to think that the law is this harsh, brutal thing that God is looking to smite people who disobey him. No, he has even started, before he even asks us uh, to obey these commands, he's saying, remember, you're my people now. Now, this is how you can live as my people. This is how you can represent me to the people around you and be a witness in that way. So it goes through, you shall love, uh, sorry, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make carved images, and on and on it goes. And we'll get back to the 10 commandments specifically, uh, one by one, to flesh those out a little bit more too. It's, a, it's very rich, it's very helpful for us uh, today, living as his children. Um, but let's get back to the law, kind of the big picture here. Why, why do we need the law in the first place? And uh, lesson six talks about 
uh, on the top of page 7, talks about uh, God's creation. When God created the world and all that was in it, all of it was very good. Learn that from Genesis 1. Uh, when God created the universe, the heavens and the earth, uh, the creatures, the humans, he said, oh, this is very good. It's a very good creation. But creation went astray. But the introduction of sin into the world corrupted creation. Tempted by Satan, who came to them in the form of a serpent, Adam and Eve doubted God and his word and disobeyed God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, sin came into the world. And with sin, we call it the fall, the fall into sin. What God created good was corrupted. Look at Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I think it's important for us to humbly recognize that uh, our sins are not only harmful to ourselves, but our sins are harmful to other people and even all of God's creation is affected. Uh, sin uh, entering into God's very good creation corrupted it. Uh, it. It brought death and decay into uh, the beautiful world that God had made. And so we groan with creation too, waiting for Christ to return and not only restore our bodies to eternal bodies, but restore the heavens and the earth to its eternal place, its eternal existence that God had designed from the beginning. Uh, now part three, God's human creation, the creatures. How are we affected by this? Well, with the fall into sin, every person became corrupt. This is called original sin. We are born with this corruption. No one escapes it. Sinful parents beget or have sinful children. And a number of scripture verses to back this up, Romans 5. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. You see that? The reason death came into the world was because of the sin. Death is not a part of God's creation. Death is not a part of God's plan. Death is not God's will. It is a horrible, horrible result of all of our sinfulness. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great uh, man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. Uh, Psalm 51.5, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So there's this original sinful nature that we are born with, we are corrupted with because of the very first people who sinned and passed this down. And uh, again, all creation is corrupted from generation to generation. It's passed down. Uh, that's original sin. Now, 
born sinful, we commit. That's the next blank. We commit sins with our thoughts, words, and actions. And the sins we commit are called, of course, commission sins, sins we commit. I think this is a really important understanding. Uh, a lot of times we think that we do something bad and so therefore we're sinful. Uh, but it actually originates from our corrupt heart. Let's see, it's, it's because we are sinful people, we do sinful things. It, it, it's a, it's a, uh, an effect of the cause of our just being sinful people, uh, born sinful and unclean. Uh, number three, because we are sinful and corrupted, mankind needed God to reveal his law for life to us. Uh, we could not naturally understand what God's perfect will would be. He has to reveal that to us, specifically like the Ten Commandments, for example. Uh, but throughout, uh, throughout the scriptures, throughout time, God has revealed himself in so many ways to his people. Uh, at the bottom of page 7, God did this through a particular people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, called the people of Israel. All right, lesson number seven, God's law. How does it function? So we talked about what God's law is. Now, what does it do? Well, because we know God's word is living and active. It is performative. And so we're talking about the law, this distinction, this part of God's word. Uh, what function does it have? What does it do to our hearts? What does it do in our world? Well, we talk about there being three uses for God's law, three functions that it serves in the world. Uh, God's law has three uses. The first use we call the curb or the civil use, like society. So God's law is this curb. If you read uh, 1 Timothy 1, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mother, uh, fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel, of course, of the blessed God. So the, the civil use of God's law is, think of it as curbs on a road. Curbs try to keep uh, cars from obviously getting too far, at least, off of the road. So this universal sense of morality uh, that God has placed in human hearts, sense of right and wrong, is to keep society from completely going off the rails. I know you might say, well, listen, why isn't it working? Well, it does. Just imagine what it would be like if nobody had any sense of morality. Nobody, nobody had any definition for right and wrong. Uh, well, you, maybe you can imagine. Uh, it, it would be horrible. So this is a universal thing that, uh, again, all people of all times and places and cultures around the world uh, have senses of right and wrong. Um, now, different societies you know, select different, you know, levels of punishment for similar transgressions. Uh, if you 
steal something in the country that I live in, in the United States, uh, you might get uh, probation. Um, if you steal something in some other countries in the world, they might chop your hand off. Uh, but both everybody understands taking something that doesn't belong to you is wrong. Civil use of the law, the curb. The second use of God's law is what we call the mirror. The mirror. If you look at Romans 3, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I think of myself as a pretty good person. Pretty good husband, pretty good dad, pretty good at my job. Or at least I work hard anyway. I'm sincere. So it's pretty easy for me to think, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty highly, highly, uh, you know, big ego, big, big, uh, high self-esteem. Well, when we look at God's law, when we look into the the mirror of the perfection that God expects of us. Remember, a hundred percent loving the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and a hundred percent loving my neighbor as myself. Well, when I actually hold that up in front of me and pay attention, I realize, oh, I'm actually a really big sinner. I think many of people can walk around and uh, sprain their shoulder, patting themselves on the back so much. Ah, I do so, I'm better than this person and that person. And we compare ourselves to other people. But when we compare ourselves to God, well, we realize we all fall short. We fall way short. And so this is really like the primary purpose of God's law is to make people recognize that they are sinful, not so they feel bad about themselves, so they cry out for help, to help them recognize their need for a savior. So sometimes uh, we call uh, the law the purpose, this purpose of the law, uh, SOS, shows our sins. Uh, the law reveals to us how sinful we really are. And now the third use of the law, we call a guide, or you could say even say a teacher, in that sense of the, the meaning of guide. First uh, Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work see uh, if I am uh, so thankful uh, for for my life I'm so thankful for God's grace and I want to serve God I want to do something good well how do I know what God wants me to do I can look at his law it he reveals how he wants me to act as a father or a husband or pastor, citizen, neighbor, uh, son, friend, relative, all of the hats that he's given me to wear, all the vocations that we call, uh, God showed us. So we can look at the law and use that as a guide to help. Now here's the interesting thing to me, I think it's really interesting, is that I don't have any control over how God's word affects someone's heart. It's all up to the Holy Spirit. So I can share, speak God's word. There can be law and gospel in there. And if you 
come to my church or uh, listen to a sermon online or a podcast, uh, you're going to hear law and you're going to hear gospel and, and that proclamation of God's word. Uh, but it just kind of broadcasts out there like an antenna, this radio waves going out. And how it hits different people is all up to the Holy Spirit. So I'll give you an example. Maybe on uh, uh, Mother's Day, uh, I may say something to the folks gathered or uh, at the church and online uh, about Mother's Day. Say, hey, husbands, hey, dads, uh, you could uh, do something nice for your, your wife today. Uh, you could watch the kids this afternoon and let her go get her nails done or go shopping or go for a jog, whatever, whatever she likes to do to, to relax. Um, and so that's law because we're talking about what we can do. So husbands, this is something you can do um, to help, help the family to be a good husband. But how it functions is, is up to the Holy Spirit. There might be uh, somebody who is sitting in the middle of the church who has been gone traveling for work for weeks on end, and he hears me say something to the extent of, hey, husbands, you know, do something nice. Be there for your wife, take care of, of your wife. And he thinks, oh my goodness, I've been neglecting her for so long. So it's kind of like the second use, like a mirror. He looks at himself in the mirror of what God expects of a husband, and he thinks, wow, I've really fallen short. Uh, I need forgiveness. So we need forgiveness from God, he needs forgiveness from his wife. Uh, but there, uh, there may be somebody in the back of the church who got drug in, didn't want to come today. It's not even paying attention to my message. Uh, but he, hears, he catches that one little part, husbands do this for your wives. And he thinks to himself, oh, yeah, I can do something for my wife. She'd, be, she'd appreciate it. Maybe she'd thank me later. and It'd be, it'd be a good thing to do. Well, that's the third use, uh, the first use. I mean, that's the civil use. That's just the curb. You know, he hears God's word, what, what God's will would be for husbands. He says, "Bah, you know, I could do that. Or, you know, there might be somebody else, another man in the church who, who is just so grateful uh, for God's grace. He's excited uh, about living his life in service to the Lord. And he's sitting there wondering, I wonder what I can do. How can I serve the Lord? And he hears it again, the Holy Spirit in his heart applies it kind of in the third use, the guide. Uh, someone who wants to do something good for someone else. All right. All right, now we're going to get into lesson eight. We're going to specifically get into the Ten Commandments, which is, again, a summary of God's law. And again, this is God's will from the very beginning. And as we, again, jump into the Ten Commandments, remember uh, God's law is not something uh, bad, uh, it's not something that constricts us or prohibits us from living a good life or having fun. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but God's law is actually only God's will. It's what he wants for us. He wants us to honor him. He wants us to honor our parents. He wants us not to kill other people, not to commit adultery, not to steal or lie, covet, uh, because Everything will work a lot better in our lives if we do those things, and God wants everything to work better in our lives. So it's simply God's will. And if uh, you can imagine a world where every single person followed the Ten Commandments, right, to the letter, I mean, what kind of world would it be? I mean, look at this. Look at how many keys I have. 
I don't need those anymore. Nobody's going to steal anything. See how wonderful the world would be? Well, that's God's will. Now, it'll be ultimately in heaven when we get to see that. Uh, but as his children here on the earth, we need to start living that way already and being that witness and example for other people. All right, so God's law, the Ten Commandments, Lesson 8. First commandment, you shall have no other gods. Martin Luther would ask that question, what does this mean? He would flesh that out. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And you might ask, what is a God? Well, a God, a false God, is anything that you fear or love or trust more than the true God, the Creator. So it's not just uh, wooden idols or stone carvings or whatever, um, but anything that competes for our heart. Uh, it could be money, it could be fame, it could be any number of things, <laughs> power. But the first commandment is we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Now, here's the... Uh, uh, the kicker. That's actually kind of the summary of all the commandments. So we kind of whittled it down, all these laws and rules uh, from 10, now we're all the way down to one. Because if you break any of the other commandments, if you remember that James scripture from last, uh, the part one that we did, um, if you trip up at one point, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. That's because uh, Every time you break one of the other commandments, you're also breaking the first commandment. If I steal a loaf of bread, well, I'm also not trusting that God is going to provide everything that he knows that I need. So I'm also breaking the first commandment. I'm not fear-loving and trusting in him above all things. If I uh, commit uh, murder, I don't know, some other sin, uh, break another one of the Ten Commandments, well, I'm not fearing God's judgment on sin. Like, this is a really serious and bad thing that I'm doing. No, no, I can just brush it off. Uh, more than I should fear, love, and trust in God. So that's the ultimate commandment. Fear, love, and trust in God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God. Stop. Oh, hear those two words again. Fear and love, right? So every commandment flows from that. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Everything flows from that. Uh, so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name. But, <clears throat> this is a big, a big turn here. Call upon it in every trouble pray praise and give thanks so in each of these commandments uh, it's not just a prohibition in other words don't take the name of the Lord in vain don't misuse the name of the Lord implied in that commandment is also an exhortation well if we're not supposed to take his name in vain what are we supposed to do well, we're supposed to use his name in holy ways, in reverence, uh, for prayer, for the, the power to heal, for the power to save uh, ourselves and others, because it's a powerful name. 
So think about that as we go through to each commandment. There's a prohibition. Don't do this. That means that we should be doing this. Third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear, love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. And uh, the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. That's uh, what does it mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. So it's not just, you know, uh, mom and dad, mother and father. It's all of the people that God has placed over us to care for us, to direct us, to protect us. Uh, it includes, uh, I would say, law enforcement, uh, government, uh, teachers, pastors, uh, aunts and uncles, grandparents, uh, everybody who God's brought into our lives, uh, again, to be kind of that, that overseeing role for us because we all need it. So we want to honor those people just as we would honor God in the first commandment. Uh, now what we see in the, uh, in the fourth commandment is this shift where the first three commandments, and I'm looking at that little that little T, upside down T, at the bottom of the page, uh, yeah, page nine. Uh, we talk about our relationship with God and our relationship with others. So not only does the law distinguish between the two, the law shows us this is how we are to relate to God, honor him above all, everything else in the universe, don't misuse his name, and remember the Sabbath day. That deals with our relationship with God. Now from the fourth commandment to the tenth, we talk about, starts with honor our father and mother. Now we're talking about our relationship to other people. Next one will be don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Uh, so that primarily deals with our relationship with other people. Now kind of hand in glove with this, uh, the way Martin Luther uh, really fleshed this out so well for all of us is this understanding that there are actually two kinds of righteousness. That's a big church word, I know. Um, but think of righteousness as just being in a good relationship with somebody. So how do, we, how do we get to be in a good relationship with our next door neighbor? Well, we're active in that. We, we talked about a little bit in the first part of our Exploring the Faith class, um, the previous session. We are active in having a good relationship with our neighbor. So if my neighbor came to me and needed a favor, hey, I'm gonna be gone tomorrow, can you roll my trash cans back up to the street? Yeah, back up to the house. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. I do it. And a month later I say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna be gone for a week. Can you grab the paper off the sidewalk and just you know take it inside? What do you think he's gonna say? Yeah, of course. I did something good for him. He'll be more than happy to do something good for me. And we talked about it. it's a sinful world there's sinful people it doesn't always work out but nine times out of ten right uh, what we put out like that how we're active in and building relationships with other people is going to get uh, returned back to us and again we get confused though when we think that that's the way our relationship with god works uh, we're not actually we're not active at all in our relationship with god we are completely passive we call that passive 
righteousness. We don't do anything except receive. Uh, and God even gives us the hands. We call it faith. Faith is the hand that receives the gift. The gift being grace, forgiveness, eternal life. Um, God comes down to save us. He literally comes down in the flesh uh, in Jesus Christ uh, to save us from ourselves, to save us from sin, hell, and save us from death. So uh, another really important pillar there, we're talking about the foundation here for our Christian worldview, that understanding, uh, especially as we look at the law here, we can see the aspects that deal with our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, that we're active and, and having good relationships with, with other people. We're passive when God comes down to save us. All right, just real quickly, finishing up the, the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, notice we should fear and love God. It all flows from that first commandment. And the prohibition that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body. So it's not just about killing another person. It's uh, about being concerned about all of their physical welfare. And here's the exhortation. But help and support him in every physical need. That's a tall order. But again, imagine what the world would be like if everybody did this. The sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life by what we say and do. And husband and wife love and honor each other. Seventh commandment, you shall not steal. We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. Again, not just about what we're not supposed to do. It implies what we should be doing to help our neighbors. Eighth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. We should fear and love God so that we do not lie about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation. But, here's the exhortation, what should we do? Defend him, speak well of him, and this is a tough one for me. Explain everything in the kindest way. Wow, now it's getting really hard to live up to. You talk about every person. Uh, the waiter that took an hour to bring your menus, every person, the, the driver who clearly should never have a driver's license, to explain everything in the kindest way. Wouldn't you want people to speak about you in the kindest way? Even if you're having a bad day, if you make a mistake, you forget something. All right, the ninth and 10th commandment talks about coveting coveting your neighbor's house, his possessions, and coveting your neighbor's wife and family, ox, the living, living things <clears throat> in your neighbor's household. So, unfortunately, God's law, SOS, it shows our sins. It crushes us. And it's kind of the point. There's three uses of the law, but ultimately, they all come down to the second use, the mirror. Uh, there's actually an old Latin theological doctrine that's called lex semper accusat. Lex means law, <clears throat> semper means always, like semper fi. And accusat obviously sounds like it accuses. 
So the law always accuses. So even if we're using the law as a guide, what can I do? What can I do? Uh, if we look in that mirror long enough, we're going to realize, uh, wow, we still fell short, <laughs> even though we were trying to do this good thing. Maybe we did something good, but we didn't do it as good as we wanted or, or could have done it. So ultimately, the purpose of God's law is to bring all people to a point where we have to cry out for help. And that's exactly where God wants us. Lord, have mercy. That's when he comes down and he picks us up. He saves us. He forgives us. He washes us clean. He gives us eternal life. He gives us this incredible ability to forgive other people and to be reconciled with people in him. So we'll talk about the gospel in the next part, but this is the part two, the law, and I hope that was helpful. Thanks for tuning in.